This hour of Canuck Central is brought to you by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler. A proud family-owned BC company helping local business since 1892. Former Canucks head coach Mark Crawford is going to join us. Uh, his take on the Sedins getting into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Also, um, the coach of the uh, 96 Colorado Avalanche who won mm-hmm. the uh, Stanley Cup. So, uh, Colorado winning it again here. But um, speaking of which, did you see the... The picture of Mike Chambers, who covers the Colorado Avalanche. Lifting the cup? Lifting the cup. Shirt dirty. Man's party. Looks um, lubricated. <laughs> Might <laughs> be the word. <laughs> I Look, I, I'm not going to like get up here and, and be on my soapbox like, hey, uh, if we're... If the Canucks were to win the Stanley Cup, would I go out partying and celebrating with the team? Pro- probably not. I-, I don't know if I would do that, but um, it is kind of funny to see that sort of a photo and see a lot of hockey Twitter just like dunking on Mike Chambers today. I mean, Chambers posted it himself. He yep. seemed fine with it, and he seemed like he enjoyed his night. Yep. So <laughs> I-, I think he- he's reveling in covering a Stanley Cup victory for the for the Colorado Avalanche. Choose to... Uh... To cover the team however you wish to cover it. You know, I think in in today's day and age, we don't have to be... Look, you obviously want to stay as objective as possible. But... I don't think you have to hide your allegiances, so to speak. No, you can can still do your job. Okay, listen. At the end of the day, we're sports commentators. Yes. And we're we're we editorialize and give opinions on sports. Nobody's but, life is changing. My, my, no, nobody's life is being impacted to this massive way as far as what our opinions are. It's not yeah. that big of a deal, dude. It, it's okay. It's sports. We'll live if you're covering a team you're a fan of. It's okay. You can uh, still do good coverage. A hundred percent. And w- what I find funny about that is, like, how do you think I got into this? You think <laughs> I'm just like. <laughs> you didn't have any favorite teams. You, you're you you're an objective like, sports fan. Yeah, you think I just never watch sports, and and, uh, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, like you know what? I'm going to be a sports radio jock one day. That's that's what I want to be. We grew up as massive, massive sports fans, and that's how we ended up here because we lived, breathed sports and hockey for most of our lives, and turned it into a career. Yeah. Um, so yeah, not surprised uh, to see that photo necessarily. More surprised to see so much of the reaction to it. Yeah, well, I mean, and, you know, well, uh, this person says, uh, "My God, are you saying if you were invited out by the team to celebrate and hoist the cup, you would say no? Give me a break. I don't think I would say no, but dude, I'm, I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying I don't know if I would post a photo of it with me being in that state of like raising it over my head. That's all I'm saying. But I am not." criticizing Mike Chambers about it actually yeah like I, I see people getting really angry about it and I'm like it's not a big deal it's really not a, not a big deal I just uh, I, I don't know if I would do it that's that's my only thought yeah on uh, on that front uh, the only person I'm letting that slide with would be Don Taylor that's uh, from Rager uh, this one in 2011 no media outlet defended Vancouver Canucks in Boston they defended Boston and showed their homerism 2011 Vancouver media too conservative and concerned about being biased. That's from uh, an unsigned texter. Uh, I would, 
okay, I don't want to rehash everything about 2011, but uh, it was just a, a quick comment on Mike Chambers living his best life. <laughs> yes. After the Colorado Avalanche won the cup. No, he's, he's having a grand old time. Uh, we are trying to connect with Mark Crawford. We'll yeah. get to him as soon as we can, uh, we can get him on the show. But, you know, it's, it's just one of those things. Uh, <laughs> in general, though, you want to be able to cover a team win a Stanley Cup. You want to be able to say that the team you spent years covering, even if you're not a fan of it, wins a Stanley Cup. Yeah. You want to be part of that. You want to be go through that experience. And for as much talk and and thought that you know media want a team to lose for the, for the cynicism of it, nobody wants to cover a team that's perennially missing perennially missing the playoffs. Number yeah. one, it's not as much fun. No. Number two, um, there's one guy who covers the Arizona Coyotes. Yes. <laughs> it ends up leading to less jobs. It yep. ends up leading to less interest. It ends up leading to really bad things. You'd rather have a team that's interesting and can make the postseason and is making the postseason is having success and my greatest dream as somebody covering the canucks would be to see them win a stanley cup yeah if, if i could cover this team winning a stanley cup and be part of that for the first ever stanley cup i'd jump on that I, i'd love to see that happen it it would be a ton of fun and see how that would play out um because it, that's what you work for in in this business and being a part of a broadcast that could have that moment, it is special. And I uh, I did get that chance earlier in my career with another team that I covered. Uh, it's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. Let's bring in the next guest, uh, ex-head coach of the Vancouver Canucks, Stanley Cup champion. It's Mark Crawford. Thanks for this, Mark. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Great to hear from you, Sat. Not behind the scenes anymore. You're front and center where you need to be. Hey, Mark, appreciate that. I mean, yeah, there was a lot of a lot of years of me calling you in Zurich and texting you oh, and wondering man. when you can jump on the show. You know, you were grinding it in Zurich for years. Oh my God, it was great. We talked wine. Yeah, that was kind of like just a human interest story, you know. Mm-hmm. And the the bro was he was he was so good at weaving yeah. things. Uh, together that was fun time so i enjoyed that <laughs> well it certainly was i mean bro was a lot of fun yeah. uh, to work with and pratt as well right i mean with the opinions oh, for sure we always look forward to, to your chats because you always brought something and you know that bro would always make a joke and, and pratt would always say something controversial he, he was he was good he kept that uh, that show moving he is as they say in broadcasting a broadcaster and a professional <laughs> yes. uh, Mark Crawford, our guest, uh, joining us here on uh, on Canuck Central. So uh, a, a lot of things to, to get to you with, but uh, obviously the, the big announcement yesterday, Henrik and Daniel Sedin are going to the Hockey Hall of Fame. Um, you were their first head coach. Uh, describe Henrik and Daniel Sedin uh, when they first showed up into your dressing room. Very quiet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I... You know, when, when we uh, first had them at the training camp, it was uh, we started over uh, in Ornskosvik, I think, mm-hmm. or, or in Sweden, actually. And uh, so for them, they, they got to start out with uh, the Canuck training camp uh, in their home country. We had the tournament over there. I forget what they called it. The, uh, oh, some sort of cup, but we won the cup. We won mm-hmm. the cup there the first time. So those guys, uh, they started out as champions. We won the cup with the preseason cup, whatever championship we were playing against. And, um, you know, I, what I remember is we were really trying to get everybody together as a team. Um, it was uh, the first year uh, without mess. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Danny and Hank being at the camp was was huge. We were trying to decide who the captain was going to be. But I do remember Danny and Hank. Uh, we had a, 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 a stock car um, uh, team builder. And so Thomas Gradeen had set it up. And uh, we're all sitting there, Berkey, Nonis, Tambellini, myself, and we're all worried. We're going, this is not good because we're it's basically smash-up car derby. And uh, <laughs> Thomas says, this is going to be great for everybody. <laughs> and what I remember most about it was one of the twins, and I think it was Daniel, but I'm probably wrong because I always mix them up, um, knocked Todd Bertuzzi right off the track. And I thought that was the funniest thing in the world uh, because Bert had uh, had no idea who who hit him from behind in the smash up derby that was the team building event, and you know all of us in in the management side we were just hoping that we were going to come away from it unscathed with no uh, injuries, and we did, and it was a great time, and ended up uh, that their initiation into the team was was terrific. Like I said, we got off to that good start. Marcus became the captain. And uh, those guys had such a wonderful, wonderful career. Uh, obviously, they had some uh, some growing uh, mm-hmm. to do, uh, but they did that so well. And, uh, you know, around the end of the time that I had them, they were uh, our best players. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can honestly say that as much as the West Coast Express uh, were the guys for most of our time, and Daniel and Hendrick played a secondary role with whoever they were playing with, um, but uh, by the end, they were the boss players on mm-hmm. the Vancouver Canucks and continued to be for years and years. Well, I think it also, despite the fact they needed to get stronger, and it says a lot about their maturity, that when they came in, you guys made the playoffs that year in the rookie season, and they were playing, you know, decent minutes on the third and fourth line. It wasn't always easy, but they still kept their heads above water. And for a team that's trying to make the postseason to get a, a bottom six line all of a sudden that can give you a little bit of an offense, can hold its own, for rookies, when you look back at it, that was a pretty big role they played for that team. Yeah, they were marvelous. And, and you, you know, you, you also consider that they played together as rookies. Mm-hmm. You know, not very often uh, that you send a rookie out there with another rookie. I mean, I, I think I can only remember it happening once or, or twice uh, in, in my long career in the NHL. But Daniel and Henrik played together as young uh, players who still needed strength. I mean, we played them with, the, you remember, we played them with Wade Brookbank at one time. And uh, they were so good, they got Wade two goals. Imagine that. <laughs> Brookbank scored two goals in a yeah. game. I can't believe it. But uh, that's how good those guys were. And again, uh, that first year was, was trying um, because of the fact that they were both young and they were both undersized. But, you know, everybody grows. Everybody uh uh, commits to doing the things that uh, they need to do to to become the super NHL players that they become. And Danny and Hank both did that. You know, in terms of conditioning and work ethic and practice habits and second effort, like those guys always gave you everything that they had there. Um, so I love the way that, uh, that they developed. We always knew that their best days were always going to continue to be uh, ahead of them early in that time uh, that I was their coach. And uh, it was uh, so great to see them uh, play so well and then to see how they flourished, you know, becoming two of the top players in the NHL for mm-hmm. a number of years. Well, you talked about how in your final year in Vancouver, that was the first year they really emerged as frontline players. They had over 70 points or productive and, and just really came into their own. 
and that was coming off missing a full year due to the lockout. What do you remember about seeing those guys come into camp and early in that season and them having taken that step physically and also just with their talent? Well, I, I think the bigger thing happened um, uh, in the uh, in the off season of the year that the the, the lockout was on, uh, or the uh, you know the players weren't playing. Uh, Dave Nonis and I went over and, and visited uh, Danny and Hank in London, and Danny and Hank at that time uh, made no bones about it. They wanted to play more. They felt they deserved to play more, and. Uh, uh, they did it the right way. You know, they, they voiced their complaint. They voiced their issues the right way with, with both Dave and myself. And I thought that was a, a real big start in, in them taking the next step to become the premier players for, uh, for the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, again, you can, uh, you can want to be uh, the premier player, but I think once you verbalize it and when you verbalize it to your bosses, um, of which Dave and I were, I think that just goes such a, such a long way. Um, there's no hiding from that. Not that Daniel never and, and Henrik ever did hide, uh, but they, they had to bring it every day. And I thought, uh, uh, as you said earlier, um, that last year that I coached them, they were magnificent. They, uh, uh, by the end of the year, uh, those two guys, along with Anson Carter, that was the top line. And that was the line that teams had trouble um um, had made the transition. It used to be the uh, uh, the West Coast Express, but I thought Danny and Hank and, and uh, uh, Anson Carter took them to another level, and uh, that was a real coming out for them in terms of being premier players. What was what was so different about them offensively? You know, we we think about the the way they would cycle the puck, the the way that they would uh, attack space in the offensive zone. They just they had a great spatial awareness, a great vision for where the opportunities were coming on the ice. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the number one thing you look for in greatness in players is vision. And both those guys have terrific vision. Uh, you know, being able to anticipate the play, being able to see what's happening around you on the ice. I mean, how many times uh, did they seem to find each other? That's unique, but it's been talked about um, over and over and over again. But you just think how good they were with the other players. They had that unique ability to know what everybody's best attributes were and uh, how to utilize the players. Uh, I thought when they had consistent uh, wingers that mm-hmm. uh, kind of did this, the, the sorts of things that really complemented their game, uh, for me, guys like Trent Klott and, uh, um, uh, of course, Anson Carter were, were, were excellent at it. Obviously, Alex Burroughs became uh, dynamite playing with them, but they were so good at using defensemen, too. Mm-hmm. And finding a defenseman on the backside and just having that great vision um, to be able to make those plays, bring people open, and take advantage of, uh, of especially offensive situations. And uh, again, I think uh, the specialty of any great player is the way that they see the game, and those guys saw it as well as anybody that's ever played. Well, you know what? You just, you just bringing up uh, how they would get the defenseman involved. I remember any time Matthias Olin was out with the Twins, it seemed like those three had a little bit of magic. Because for as tough as Olin was and as big as he was, he had some decent hands. He could score. He could shoot the puck pretty well. It, it almost seemed like he came to life a bit more any time he was on the ice with the Sedins. Yeah, uh, I think most players are like that. You know, not uh, and I love Olin. I think mm-hmm. Olin is. Uh, uh, quite arguably one of my favorite uh, players that uh, ever played uh, for the Vancouver Canucks. Uh, but 
um, I think when he was out there with them, yes, he probably knew, hey, if I get open, these guys can get me the puck. Mm-hmm. And most good players have that sense about them. Uh, they know that if they're playing with Mark Crawford, like some of the guys did in the 80s, you know, not much of a chance I'm getting the puck to you. I might slap <laughs> it off the boards, maybe put it off somebody's pads. And, uh, maybe you might be able to get a rebound, or I might be able to get a rebound. But for, for guys that have skill, that have vision, that have the ability to make plays, um, that's who defense would want to play with. Yeah. They love being able to find that opening. And, and uh, you know, defensemen love to score, but they also love to play with guys that can help them to score. Yeah, no question about that. But, Mark, I mean, it, it, uh, the Sedins, that's the big news of this week, of course. But uh, some other big news that's happened with the Vancouver Canucks that's also related to you. Uh, your son, Dylan Crawford, has been hired as a video coach for the Vancouver Canucks. How cool was that to see uh, you as someone who played for this organization, coached in this organization, and now seeing your son be part of their organization? Uh, I, I was absolutely uh, just so proud uh, when he decided to take the job. I'll tell you, he had a couple of opportunities. He had a couple of teams that were after him, and um, Vancouver is basically his dream, dream job. Um, uh, both my wife and, and myself, we, we have such good friends. We still got our place uh, in Vancouver. We have so many good friends that live there, and we're excited that, that uh, Dylan and uh, uh, his new wife will be living in Vancouver. We get to probably get out there a little bit more, uh, especially if I don't find a job, I'll be uh, bugging him a lot. He'll, I'll get my fill of hockey, uh, unfortunately, maybe uh, uh, talking to him. But uh, we were very proud of him. He's ready to be a, a, a head uh, video coach. He's really worked hard at his trade. Um, he did five years in television working for uh, TSN, uh, the NHL Network, and uh, Sportsnet, and then he went out and he got a job in the American League in Binghamton, uh, moved on to Belleville, and then he went to uh, uh, Chicago for four years. So he is absolutely ready. Couldn't be more proud of him, and he's going to do uh, a great job for the Canucks. He's a really good kid. He takes after his mother, so he must be nice. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's uh, what, what's next for you, Mark? Uh, I don't know. You guys, uh, you guys got anything for me? <laughs> I'm still looking. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, obviously got the uh, a little bit of a soft landing because I'm still under contract to the uh, uh, the Blackhawks for another year. So, um, you know, I I still feel I have a lot to give to the game. I want to um, coach. I hope I get an opportunity. Uh, at the same time, I'm enjoying life, as they say, and hopefully trying to be as thankful as I can be. Did it? Uh, did it bring back memories uh, seeing the Avalanche uh, skate the skate the cup around the ice? Huge memories. I, I think that that team there was very very similar to the team that won uh, in 1996. Mm. Uh, you look at the uh, the, uh, the captain uh, Landeskog just showed so much character. Uh, I really thought he he was the true leader of that team, and uh, Makar was just he was so special. Um, to me, like I've said this a couple times this week when I talk to, to people, I think he's the best player in the league right now. And I know people will say, oh, yeah, you probably can't compare them because, you know, Connor McDavid and Austin Matthews, those guys are, uh, are great. But right now, if I had to build a team, that would be the one guy that I would start with. He can do everything. He defends well. He looks like he's tireless. He's such a great skater and he's so offensively uh, gifted and 
so committed to the team. What a great team first attitude you have. And and to me, uh, I was blessed with having Joe and Peter and uh, and Adam Foote and a lot of guys like that who all had those same attributes. When you have uh, your leaders be team first guys, boy, everybody else follows because they almost have to. I, I think you you see McKinnon playing so selflessly, and uh, you see McCarr doing it. And uh, like I said, I thought the Landis Cog uh, kid was uh, – was absolutely terrific. He just did so many things, finishing checks, being in the way, uh, doing a lot of gritty things that uh, uh, allowed the Avalanche to finally cross the threshold. Uh, it's been a long time for them uh, waiting, and a lot of people thought it might have come before this. But NHL's a tough league, guys. It takes uh, an awful lot of uh, effort, and you gotta you got to learn some lessons along the way, and the Avalanche did, and it was great to see them win. I keep wondering if the game can get any faster, Mark. But I mean, the the, the Boy, tempo that they play with is just unbelievable. Yeah, you know what it is, and, and you got to give the league a lot of credit for this too. You know, they've put in the the, the regulations. They made a crackdown this year uh, with uh, uh, no cross checking, and I thought that that really sped the game up. You know, how many times, if you just look in the Canuck history, how many guys made their living at the front of the net? And and just, you know, they cross-check back, you know, both defensively and, and uh, offensively. I and mean, I think of guys like Matthias Olin and Murray Barron and uh, Eddie Jovanovsky. And like, they used to, that was an old parking zone for crying out loud in front of that. <laughs> and, uh, and Todd Bertuzzi on the other side, like how hard was it for people to... Uh, to to push him around in front of the net, like he made his living. He was mm-hmm. arguably the best player in the league there in in the early 2000s, just because he was so good in front of the net and he could give it as well as it, he could take it. And uh, now it, it's illegal to do that stuff, so people got to be really fast. And people are allowed to stay in front of the net, so tipping and rebounds and those sorts of things are such a big big part of the game and um, I love it I think the scoring is great I do think that's what people uh, want they want good hard hitting and and good uh, uh, complete hockey but uh, I think if they, you can give them scoring is usually something uh, good uh, about a game that you go see that has a lot of goals in it. hey coach uh, we really appreciate your time today uh, and the memories as well thanks for this all right, congratulations to Danny and Hank. I still can't tell them apart. They texted me. I texted them yesterday, and I couldn't tell which text was which when they texted me back. That's, I'm kidding. I knew it. I just had to look at their names. Yeah. That's how uh, indistinguishable they are. Hey, Crow, uh, we'd love to see you uh, back behind the bench soon, but uh, as long as you're available, you're free to be on the show whenever you want, all right? So let's stay in touch. All right, guys. All right, thanks. See you, guys. There is uh, Mark Crawford, uh, Stanley Cup champ. Uh, first coach uh, for Henrik and Daniel Sedin in the NHL. And uh, some great insights there uh, in our conversation with Mark Crawford. We have more coming as Corey Schneider will join us, former teammate of Hank and Danny, and of course, battery mate with Roberto Luongo. Story time with Corey Schneider is next on Canuck Central. Canuck Central this hour is presented by Andrew Sherritt Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company, helping local business since 1892. 
In case you missed hour one, we had Henrik and Daniel Sedin speaking on their induction to the Hockey Hall of Fame. Also, uh, the story of me going to gender reveal parties and getting asked about J.T. Miller. <laughs> and whether or not the Canucks will keep him or trade him. Are you keeping him? Uh, so, uh, so Dan, what's uh, good carrots here, eh? <laughs> um, what's, what's going on with J.T. Miller? With JT Miller, these these are great pistachios. Really like these all dressed chips. Uh, have you had all dressed fries? No, very good. That's a thing. It's not what you think. All dressed, like yeah. I'll tell you more about it later. Okay. I don't know. All dressed fries sound weird. Uh, all right, let's bring in our next <laughs> guest. Uh, he is. Uh, Corey Schneider joining us, longtime Vancouver Canuck. Thanks for this, Corey. How are you? Great, guys. How you doing? Uh, we're we're doing well. Uh, we're kind of going down memory lane, getting stories around uh, Hank and Danny, and of course, uh, even Roberto Luongo. You were his battery mate for a long time. Um, is he as good a poker player as everybody makes him out to be? <laughs> I was too afraid to sit at the table on the plane <laughs> with those guys, and I don't even think I was allowed to be honest because I was too young. So there was a waiting line, but. Uh, I wouldn't want to play against him in poker. Let's put it that way. So, I mean, he he got into it pretty good on the road. You know, he'd be busy on the computer playing games, and, you know, he won some real money. So, um, again, having never technically played against him directly, I can only assume from all the stories that he's as good as he says he is. Well, those stories about the uh, the games on, on the plane, are they as legendary as we've been led to believe? Like, were you afraid of getting into it because you may lose a lot and it may put you in a tough spot? That was part of it, yeah. As a young guy getting in the league, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, you only you only had the money that was in front of you, and you know those guys were were the heavy hitters. And I mean, you think you think at all the personalities now who were at that table it was the Twins and Roberto and uh, Burroughs and Bieksa and Kessler and I think Rafi Torres might have. So like, you think about the the wit and uh, maybe sneakiness of that group in terms of trying to uh, you know trick you in the game. It was a game that I was just. You know, I consider myself a pretty smart guy, and even then, I was like, I, I can't sit with these guys and, and figure what the heck they're trying to do. So I'm just going to stay out of it and keep my money. Yeah, and the Sedins, you know, very competitive and, and sneaky behind the scenes. Like, you know, they'll manipulate a little bit. I mean, they're, they're not as as nice and friendly as they come off all the time. Hey, but they'll do it with a smile on their face. Yeah, like, at least if they're, if they're screwing you over, <laughs> yeah. or like they know they're putting one past you, like they'll at least like apologize or like smile at you. <laughs> so you, you always felt better about it if they took your money. You're like, ah, all right, well, at least they're nice guys. They don't feel so bad about losing. It's always the quiet ones you got to worry about. That's uh, that's, that's one thing. That's what I say. Yeah, they know more than you think, so you just got to watch out for them. They're the actual killers. So, when it comes to um, you know working alongside and with Roberto Luongo, what was what was it for you that that made uh, that that partnership that relationship special? Yeah, you know, it obviously it ran its course and had its time where it had to sort of dissolve and, and go separate ways for different reasons. But you know, I. I can say, like, I wish I'd had more time playing with him and being his teammate. Same goes for, with Hank and Danny. Um, but, you know, for Roberto specifically, you know, he's a guy that, uh, in, you know, when I was younger, I had his poster on my wall in my, my, my childhood bedroom back home. You know, I had all the greats, you know, Marty and, and Rawa, and, and Roberto was right there. So he was a guy that I grew up watching and enjoyed, you know, from as a fan, just growing up watching the game, you know. And uh, so to get the chance to play with him, it was, it was, it was intimidating at first. He's such mm-hmm. a big presence just on the ice as a human like he's he's a big you know wide kind of you know broad guy with long arms he's, a, he's larger than life in person too so to get to work with him and sit next to him um it took me a little while to, to get used to that to, to see him as a teammate and appear and not just sort of be in, in awe of him but 
um, you know, he as a person quickly, you know, dissuaded me of that notion. He was, he was very uh, friendly and forthcoming and helpful. And, and, you know, he like, you know, you've seen a sense of humor on Twitter and, and talking mm-hmm. with him. Um, so we both have that kind of wry, dry sense of humor, sarcasm. So um, yeah, I think we hit it off pretty well from that standpoint. And I think it just the timing of our career arcs hit pretty well at the beginning there, just me coming in the league and trying to establish myself, having a lot of potential and him, you know, having gone through so much already by the time I got there, that he was sort of hardened to, you know, the media and the pressure and mm-hmm. everything that went along with playing in Vancouver. He was able to kind of teach me about that and, and show me, you know, whether he knew it or not, um, you know, this is sort of how you handle it here and, and go about your business and still play at a high level and not let the noise affect you. And um, for me, you know, to push him and to keep him, you know, not that he needed it, but to keep yeah. him, uh, you know, working hard and, and earning the ice, and which he did every single day. So I think we just, you know, at, at those points of our careers, it was almost, almost like a perfect storm in terms of, um, you know, where we were at in our, our lives and our careers. Well, and I think undoubtedly that probably was uh, was something that drove both you guys because, you know, obviously you, you were a high pick. You were trying to establish yourself in the National Hockey League, Luongo Hall of Fame goaltender. And it probably says a lot about both you guys, your relationship, and also the personalities that when your game really started to excel and you're kind of, you know, going into his starts and at one point it becomes, you know, this huge story in this market about who should start, who should be here, that on the from the outside, and it never seemed like that ever affected you guys individually. Yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, we just ended up really respecting each other. Um, you know, I obviously had it for him coming in just because of his track record and his resume. Um, but then I got to meet him as a person and, you know, I, I kind of developed another level of respect for him in terms of uh, the character side and, and who he was as a, as a human. And I, I think over time, he developed that for me as well as I earned, earned my ice time and um, showed that I belonged and, and uh, could play there and, and, you know, be a good goalie. And also, like I said, from the personal standpoint, so I think at the end of the day, you know, we just had a mutual respect. And, and when one of us did well, it, you know, we were happy for the other person genuinely. It wasn't, um, you know, a, a selfish thing. And, and again, we both wanted to play. So at the end of the day, it obviously had to, had to go in separate ways, but neither of it was because either one of us, uh, you know, you know, had any animosity towards the other. It just was, it was time. So um, I think that was sort of the root of it. And, and to this day, we're still very friendly. And, you know, um, when we talk to each other, text, we always try to seek each other out every chance we get, which isn't often anymore. But, um, you know, like I said, it, it seems like yesterday we were, we were there and, and playing on the same team. So it, it says a lot that uh, you know we still have a, a good relationship. What did what did you admire admire about his game? Was it a certain technique, work ethic? What what, what specifically maybe that you didn't know before you started uh, playing with him and alongside him? Yeah, I think it was just his competitiveness. Just the way you know he never took a morning skate off until unless they forced him off the ice or like the bus literally wasn't going to the rink. Um, you know, you saw the flashy glove saves and the you know he had the name Roberto Luongo, just like it's it's like a it's it's like a highly real name and, um, you know, playing in Florida, making a million saves a year just behind a bad team and then coming to Vancouver and it's just some epic games. So, you know, the triple overtime game and, and, uh, you know, just, he had a lot of, of games on his resume where you just looked at him like this guy's a machine, but then you, you see him in person and on the dice every single day. It's not like he's making it up as he goes. He, he worked really hard. And, um, I think that really rubbed off on me in terms of my work ethic and my habits and how I approached, uh, each day playing in the NHL. Well, and what was it like, though, also being, you know, you had a sizable role on the team when you guys made the run to the Stanley Cup final. I mean, you, you played a couple of games in the postseason, and we all remember the start in Game 6. But what was it like being part of that and seeing Luongo on the top of his game, the Sedins at the top of their game, you're really coming, you know, into your own as a real bonafide top-end goaltender. What was it like to be part of that environment and then seeing these great players do their thing at their peak? 
It was it was fun. I, you know, it's almost like you don't realize at the time, just because mm-hmm. you're in the moment and you're so focused on what's going on and, and worried about what's happening. And you know, as a young guy, you sort of think like, oh, it's always going to be like this, right? Like this is how it is. And you know, you don't know any different. So it's not that I took it for granted. I, I enjoyed every moment of it. And and uh, you know, those were some of the most fun years of, of my career. Um, but sometimes I think you do take for granted like the the elite elite players in their prime and and how good they are just because you get so used to it. You, you know when you're pra- you're on the team and you see the twins doing what they do in practice every day, and you you're skating with Roberto every day, it becomes normal. And um, I think when you get away from it, you realize it's anything but normal. Um, so you know I think it's it's incredible that they all got in on the on the first ballot. I'm glad they did. You know I'm a, I'm a small Hall of Fame guy. Not that I have a vote or anything, but mm-hmm. um, you know I I like to keep the Hall small and I. I I'm happy that they all got in so that we don't have to have this debate anymore about whether they should be Hall of Famers or not. But um, like I said, you, sometimes when you're around greatness every single day, you just, you just like I said, it, it gets normalized. And, and uh, I th- I'm just really happy that they're all getting uh, recognized for, for how great they truly were. How were Hank and Danny in practice? Uh, stupid. It was, <laughs> you know, it, it, they, you know, they, they set the tone, not, not just with their skill and talent, but they set the tone. Like they executed, they, they made, high-end plays they made plays with pace just in practice and if things weren't up to their standards they, they let us know or they stopped practice and you know they weren't screamers and yellers but they just said hey guys let's do this right like there's a way to do it let's do it the right way um and we were trying to live up to that standard with the stuff they could do in terms of cycling and uh those passes they could make and the way they thought the game it was a high standard but i think that was the standard that was set for our group and why you know we had such a great season that year and the year after and um, they were, you know, the catalyst along with Roberto and, and, and all, obviously a lot of other guys, but you know, those three were the pillars who, um, were our superstars and they carried themselves that way. And they, they worked the hardest. They were in the weight room the longest, you know, as a young guy, it's, it's, you know, sit there and say, oh man, should I do this optional workout or not? And you see Hank and Danny in there and you're like, ah, all right, I guess I have to, you know, I don't have yeah. a choice now. <laughs> um, so they just set the tone in those ways without being, um, arrogant or, or, you know, um, you know, gregarious in their actions. Like they were just very subtle and very calm and they did their thing. And, you know, they never, you know, demanded that people follow them. People just did because, you know, they did it the right way. Well, and as far as being a young player coming into that type of environment, I mean, how, how beneficial is it and how different is it if you go into an environment that doesn't have that type of a standard? But like you mentioned, that's very much the exception, not the rule as far as finding that type of a standard. But how much of a difference can that make for a young player that comes into that type of environment? Yeah, I, I think I mentioned this before, but like, you know, obviously I came in at, or I, you know, full time, I think I came in, I was 24 mm-hmm. and, you know, split time and didn't really get to be a starter until I was 26, 27. And, Everyone sort of says, oh, man, that stinks. You you got stuck behind Roberto and you didn't get to really become a starting goalie until you were 27. And, you know, that could be true. We don't know. We don't have a crystal ball or we, we can't go back in time and, you know, re-simulate re, uh, what would happen if I played elsewhere. But I also know, you know, you see guys who come into really bad teams too quickly and, and they burn out. You know, they get they get left out, you know, to dry behind some terrible teams and it ruins their confidence and they never rebound and they don't have any career. So, like, I look at it in the sense that, you know, I couldn't have asked for anything else to learn from those guys. And I, I still tell stories about them to this day in terms of, you know, to young guys that I play with in terms of how to, how to carry yourself and um, what to do, what are the right things. You know, I, I've taken those lessons I learned and, and apply them for the rest of my career. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty thankful. I, I got to experience that and be around those guys. And as, as I mentioned, not just Roberto and the twins, but how many of those guys now are in coaching or management or, you know, media who are, um, standing out in their profession, you know, it was, it was a special group of, of guys intellectually, you know, and, and skill wise and just as a team. So 
um, you know, I, I couldn't be more thankful to have played with that group, you know, even for the few years that I was there full time. But um, it's definitely stuck with me and, and I think helped me in my career. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that watching your career with the Vancouver Canucks during that spell. I mean, I just remember, I don't think a team, as much as we've seen great goaltending, I can't think of a better tandem over the past 20 years at your guys' peak than you and Lou as a pair. I mean, you know, like I said, I, I was, you know, he was he was him. That's that's what he did, right? Like that was year in, year out. I know he had some really good years, uh, just went around when I was there. Um, I don't know if that had to do with me or not, but, I, you know, I think that was his norm. Like, he's obviously, you know, uh, a Hall of Fame goaltender, so I think that was his standard. And I think me being there raised my level of play, and I was able to hit a hit a point or, um, you know, put up numbers that maybe I wouldn't have anywhere else. And, and uh, you know, I think at the end of the day, we had such a great team, but uh, whether it was me or Louie in the net, you know, I think they knew that they could rely on it to get a save or have a goalie steal a game when the team wasn't as good as it was. And, um, you know, I think that was why we were such a complete team that there were really no weak links anywhere. And, uh, you know, just a, a, a side note on Roberto is my first year, I think I needed one more game to be eligible for the Jennings. And Roberto was scheduled to start the second to last game. And I think with two minutes left, you know, he basically told AV to pull him and put me in. So I got credit for another game played. So like that, that made me eligible for the Jennings trophy because he wanted to share with me, even though he had every right to, to have his name on it himself, you know, because he did a bulk of the work. But um, just the kind of person and teammate he was, he insisted that, that I get that one more appearance to, to be eligible. And I thought, you know, to, again, to that, to this day, that, that stands out to me as a really selfless and, and, um, you know, um, incredible gesture by him. Uh, Corey Schneider, our guest here on, uh, on Canuck Central, uh, you're coming off a season with the Islanders organization. Uh, what's, what's up next for you, Corey? Uh, good question. You know, um, <laughs> I'm just here. We, we settled in Connecticut. That's where we, uh, live for this season. And, uh, we ended up buying a house here. It's near my home in Boston and kind of where I've been the last 10 years of my life with New York and New Jersey. So it's a pretty centralized location. And we found a great little area that we've, uh, my wife and I, Jill and I have settled with our kids who are six and four. So we're plenty busy, but, um, yeah, you know, I had some good conversations with the Islanders after the season. Um, you know, I'm working out just to stay in shape and stay ready and, you know, yeah, you know, if I can play, I'd like to, you know, I, I felt really good this year, even if mostly in the minor leagues. Um, but, you know, I kind of was able to play hockey again for the first time in two or three years and it felt good and I, I enjoyed doing it. So I think that's the most important part. So, you know, whether something comes along that, that works out in terms of my life and my career and my family, um, you know, I definitely consider it. Um, but if, you know, if that's it, then, uh, you know, I'm not really concerned about that and, and excited for what's next. So I haven't really made any decisions either way, just, just kind of staying ready and, um, just kind of seeing what happens uh, in the next few weeks here with the draft and free agency and all that kind of stuff. I think you might be downplaying a little bit uh, how good you were in the AHL this year, especially from the stuff that I heard talking to some people about your game. But how important was it for you to not only get back to play that one game in the NHL, but to be able to have a really strong year overall after going through a lot of injuries the past few years? Yeah, it was, it was important. You know, it was it, it, the league seemed so far away at, at certain times, um, you know, getting sent down and then bought out and then uh you know our season got stopped by covid obviously in march and uh you know basically didn't play a game until fall of 2021 so i kind of went you know 18 months without playing a real game um which at my age and in, in your mid-30s <laughs> is a long time and it's a long time for anybody but um you know there were, it just seemed at times like you know the game was unattainable or i'd never get back to that level or to the nhl so um you know, for me to, to have that opportunity to come here and just play some games and get back into a rhythm and, and have the game, you know, come to me like it has for most of my career was nice. It was, it was a great feeling. And, 
um, you know, again, hockey was fun again for the first time in a little bit for me. So, um, yeah, you know, maybe it saved me some mileage. So even at 36, I, I don't feel 36, but, um, you know, you're a different point in your life, you know, family wise, kid wise, lifestyle wise. So it also makes sense at this point, you know, you can't just go do, do what you want to do or, you know, grind it out forever just because that's what you want to do. You have to keep other people in mind and I want to be cognizant of that. But, um, you know, from a personal standpoint, uh, it, it was a good feeling. It was, like I said, I, I had fun just going out and playing and, and not thinking too much about it. So to get that game in the NHL, again, you know, I've, I've played 400 of them, but it was funny to play that one. Um, that meant a lot to, to me and my family, just getting back to that point. And, you know, who knows? Hopefully maybe there's another opportunity to do that next season. But um, like I said, I'm pretty content and, and happy with where I'm at and, and what I've done. So um, we'll just see where it goes from here. Hey, Corey, we wish you the best. Thanks for uh, going down memory lane with us today. You got it, guys. Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, there is uh, Corey Schneider, former Vancouver Canuck, uh, played with the Islanders organization this year. This might be an all-time day as far as discussions with uh, guests. And Henrik and Daniel Sedin, Crow was incredible, and you can talk to Sh- Corey Schneider for hours on it. Yeah, you know, uh, just just great discussions with all with all four individuals we've spoken to today. It's fascinating to to hear Corey talk about his time with Roberto. Because there's clearly a mutual respect there, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, you you want to play, and he didn't he didn't hide from that. And you look at his career numbers, Sat. He was incredible through the first number of years through his career, and even when he gets traded to New Jersey, he maintains being an over nine twenty goaltender for a few years before the injuries start to set in. He had a lot of you know good years where he was. Just kind of one of those grade A backups yeah. in the league behind one of the best goalies of all time. And learning from him, working with him, yes, but you could tell like there's there's a mutual respect, but also what would my career have been if I uh, didn't get stuck behind Luongo too? Yeah, and you know, and like you said, I mean, it's hard to say because maybe you go somewhere else, but you don't get off to a good start and it just doesn't work out. Next thing you know, you're toiling and you don't end up in a good situation in those practice situations that he talked about, but he did have a good peak. Yeah. He got a big contract out of it too, you know? So it's not like, you know, he didn't have his moments. It's not like potential loss. It's more about the ride could have been longer, but that goes back with goaltending. And we talk about how hard it is for a goaltender to have a hall of fame career. So much of it goes to when you're ready, the team you go to, how that all breaks through, your health, the number, number of wins that you have, and how long you can maintain a high level of play. And we see how much variance there is year to year in goaltending, individual goaltenders, how hard it is for them to be consistent. And, you know, Corey Schneider had a stretch because I would count the, uh, the last, well, three years in Vancouver, 25 starts, 33 starts, and 30 starts. Now, the 130 start year was the short, lockout shortened season. Yeah. Uh, and it was him and Luongo for 50 games. They split it, a 50-game season. Schneider played 30 that year. Yeah. Luongo played 20. He kind of wrestled the job away from Luongo that year. But from that stretch, he had a six-year stretch where he one was one of the better goaltenders in the National Hockey League. For three years out after Vancouver, he was legitimately one of the best goalies, and he squeezed another couple of years out being decent. And then the injuries caught up with him. Yeah. But that's still... A, Good career is just not a Hall of Fame career. <laughs> There's so few careers like Roberto's in the NHL. And, you know, when I think about being a goaltender for that long, you've heard a lot of the stories today of 
what Roberto had to do to get himself ready for every game, especially towards the end there in Florida. He kind of talked about it when he eventually retired. But an incredible career for a goalie to go that long. Him, Marty Brodeur, Hashik. There's such few guys that lasted that long because the position takes such mm-hmm. a toll on your body. It's Dan Riccio and Satyar Shaw. I don't know what we're going to do going down memory lane like this on such big Canucks years. It, it ends up, I do wonder how many people feel this way, Sat, and we've had a few of these types of texts. It's almost bittersweet as a fan because you're remembering the greatness these players brought to your franchise, but also remembering it didn't end in the ultimate prize. No, it didn't. Um, And I I think that's probably the one thing that you think about, and that's what the players have talked about. For fans more than anything else, I think for most fans... When it comes to the Sedins, I think they've gotten over them not winning a cup. I think we've overcome yeah. the the grief as a city over 2011 to some degree. I know the wounds are still there when you think about it, but when the Sedins retired their final game, and when that ended, and the way they retired that final game against Arizona in the OT winner, and just a magical night to be out. I mean, I just I still can't believe I get goosebumps thinking about that night. I mean, it was just magical. It was just written for, for yep. it to be that way. But that was kind of the end of it. And now that there's been enough time, I, I don't look back at the Sedins as much and say, well, what if? I think it's, it's over now. I think we've, I, I think people, I'm not going to say how people should feel, but I get the sense that there's been a coming to grips mm-hmm. with what was, what they were, and how we can appreciate what they were accomplished. And this week was a reminder of, man, this was pretty cool watching yeah. these guys do their thing. These three players, but especially Henrik and Daniel Sidian. You got to let go at some point and you'll never forget. But it really seems like a lot of that pain and disappointment that was directed at those guys from that failure has washed away as it should. I uh, I agree with that. Uh, again, you can listen back to our interview with Henrik and Daniel, hour one of the show. Mark Crawford and Corey Schneider here on this hour. Just want to say this. I didn't want to be that guy to oh. ask Corey Schneider to ask to do his Yannick yeah, Hansen impression. I know a lot of people texted in about it. Um, I know that that uh, Corey was asked to do it at another time and declined doing it. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's it. You know what I mean? It, it was sometimes when you're in person with somebody, you kind of mm-hmm. joke around. You got to feel it's an easier thing to do. But I, I would say that there have been times when Schneider has declined doing it again after he did it the one time. Yeah, he has his reasons. That's why I didn't want to go back to something he's declined doing after Some, doing it once. As somebody who does impressions sometimes or used to, I hate being that guy that just like anytime somebody sees you, they ask you, "Hey, can you do your Stone Cold impression?" No, and is it hard to do it? Like I'm, I'm terrible with impressions. Yeah. Is it hard to do it on the spot when somebody puts you on the spot? No, it's no? just kind of annoying. Uh, annoying. Uh, it's, not, it's not fun. See, you don't like to be asked about JT Miller. Uh, don't, I didn't don't say I don't so like don't, being don't go asked up to it. don't go up to Dan Riccio no. and ask him about JT no. Miller, and don't go up to Dan Riccio and ask him to do impersonations. That's that's my two takeaways <laughs> today. I'm I'm the jerk. Yes, that is <laughs> that is supposed to be the takeaway. It's uh, Dan Riccio, Sat T R Shaw. Final hour coming next on Canuck Central.